Welcome to Present Value. Hi, Present Value listeners. I'm Madeline Lai, VP of Faculty Relations of the Communications Club at Cornell Johnson. Today, I'm pleased to introduce this episode with Professor Erica Dawson, an expert in negotiation and conflict management. She teaches worldwide on judgment and decision-making, negotiation, leadership, and coaching. She has worked with groups as diverse as German engineers, Tibetan monks, female pharmaceutical scientists, and American sixth graders. In this episode, Professor Dawson gives a blueprint for negotiations, talks about her model for leadership, and reflects on mentors in her own life. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and as always, subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow Present Value on Instagram and Twitter at Present Value Pod. I'm your host, Alex Vorwald, and today I'm excited to welcome Professor Dawson, Nancy and Bob Salander, Director of Leadership Programs at the College of Engineering. Before this, she was the previous director of the U.S.-Israel Center on Innovating and Economic Sustainability, and she trained through Coaches Trainings Institute's curriculum for co-active coaching and co-active leadership. Professor Erica Dawson also designed the program on organizational and executive ethics at the Dalai Lama Center for Ethics and Transformative Values at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She is an expert in negotiation and conflict management and consults worldwide for organizations ranging from large multinational consulting firms to small nonprofits. She's a skilled coach working one-on-one to help individuals become confident in using negotiation to build relationships and meet their interests. She also consults on group processes, leadership development, and other areas central to the functioning of high-performing teams. Professor Dawson, thank you so much for joining us today on Present Value. Thank you for having me, Alex. I'm really happy to be here. To begin, how can we define negotiations and what is the benefit of having good negotiation skills? So I like to define negotiations very broadly. To be honest, when people outside of our world ask or learn that I teach negotiation, the next question is often, well, business negotiation? And the answer, of course, is yes. But negotiation to me is really a communication skill set that applies to a lot of different areas of life. So I think about negotiations pretty broadly as any kind of situation where people are working together or or collaborating together in some way to try to get something out of the situation together that they couldn't get on their own. So that, of course, includes lots of business negotiations, even things like a buy-sell agreement, right? You can't buy a house without the person selling it to you and vice versa. So you need to work with each other in that sense. But it also includes situations like in our household, you know, negotiating the identity of the person who's going to get up at two in the morning with our brand new puppy and take her out into the yard. That's a nice little negotiation we have in our household. And it really is quite the same. We both need to accomplish something and no one person could get it done on their own. And so from that perspective, I think one of the reasons I'm passionate about negotiation and, and passionate for the need for people to develop these skills is that it really is about you know, how do you get along with other people? How do you get your own needs met through and with other people? And then how can they do the same with you? And I just think that's kind of a a life skill, really. So that's one of the reasons I'm pretty passionate about it. I think it applies in so many different areas of, of personal and professional life. 
I love that, and I love both your passion for it and your articulation of that. One of the things you talked about was the mindset of asking for what you want. Many people are uncomfortable doing that. What are some tips and suggestions you would give so someone becomes more comfortable asking for what they want? Yeah, that's so true. You know, in my classes, roughly half the people have that problem and half the people have the opposite problem. They're way, way too comfortable demanding what they want. I approach it in two different ways. One is to just sort of understand better where that reticence comes from. So why are people hesitant about asking for what they want? And I think in in some degree, understanding where that comes from is important. Sometimes it's a cultural context. So people might have been raised in a way that suggested to them it's not appropriate to ask for what they want, that it might come off as putting your own needs above other people's needs, and therefore it's not a nice thing to do. And that can happen, you know, cross-nationally. It can happen with the way different, you know, boys and girls are raised. There's a lot of gender context to negotiation that can prevent particularly women from growing up being told they should ask for what they want. And so I think understanding where those beliefs come from is important because then people can start to reframe those beliefs. Very often there's an implicit belief that when I ask for what I want, I'm telling you what you want doesn't matter. And so that's not at all true, but it does require kind of identifying those beliefs and poking at them a little bit and finding, you know, where's the overlap between how I can represent my own needs and you represent yours and neither of us has to come out the winner or the loser. So that's certainly part of it. The more important part is just to start doing it. It's easy to get stuck in the analysis and the understanding and working yourself up to being more comfortable. But really the way I teach it is that you also just need to start practicing it and getting that feedback in the real world about what happens when you start asking for more. And very often the feedback is much more positive than people expect. So in my negotiation classes and my negotiation coaching, I actually have a series of, I call them negotiation gyms, where people go out in the real world and they build up muscle around these kinds of things. And so the very first gym is a very easy one. It's really just to ask for anything, anywhere that you normally wouldn't have asked for. Pretty low bar, but even taking that small step, people get feedback about, oh, it's okay to ask for things. You know, people aren't going to get super offended. They're not going to close the door in my face. It's not going to damage my relationships. And so I think the understanding is part of it. And then the doing is a big part of it too. Yeah. I think that's really important given the context. And if you want to do negotiation gyms, are there home workouts you can do? Yeah, that's, that's really great. I hadn't thought of that before, but yeah, we're all moving to like online home gyms. So why not negotiation gyms? Yeah. I think in a, in some sense, yes. And it is kind of like our real world gyms for sure. There's opportunities to do these little workouts. They're going to be different than they would be out in the world, but they're still valuable. You know, a lot of the foundations of negotiation is just great communication. It's good listening skills. It's being a patient problem solver. And so I actually have some, you know, I'm teaching a couple of classes right now online negotiation, and we are doing some gyms that include things like, you know, listen better. So I teach a way of listening that's very simple. It's just about where you put your attention when somebody's talking. This is absolutely essential in negotiation to be a very careful listener so that you can pick up on things that people may be trying to tell you, but not articulating or things that people want to not tell you, and you can kind of get a sense of that. But it's all about good listening. And for sure, that's something that all of us could be practicing 
right now with the people we're home with. In fact, it's probably something that would make a lot of our lives a lot easier as we're all on top of each other in these closed spaces. It's just to to practice better listening skills, right? To be more patient, more open-minded listeners. There are other little gyms, for example, getting out of the mindset. So recognizing when you're in the mindset of win-lose. This is another home gym you could do. Where am I assuming that if I get my way, you won't get your way? And maybe I could back that up and start finding ways where both of us could come out of this situation with something that we're happy with. And again, that, that for sure could take place with partners, kids, anybody that you're stuck at home with right now needs a little bit more of that win-win mentality, I think. I find it to be pretty funny given that last <laughs> statement. And you mentioned listening and communication skills. I'd like to dive deeper into that. What's some differences between strategies and tactics in that sphere? Yeah, I mean, some of it's semantics. So when I think about strategies, it's an overall plan of how you're going to approach a situation or what kinds of rules you're going to put into place. So a strategy might be, you know, in negotiation, if they do something to me, I'll do it back to them. And that's just like a tit for tat strategy. So it's more like an algorithm. The way I think about it, it's kind of like your mindset about how you approach a given situation. And then tactics are specific things that you are going to do in a particular situation. So some tactics might be, you know, if I'm going to make an offer on a car, my tactic is to start a lot lower than I'm actually willing to go. So I give myself room to negotiate up. That would be a tactic of anchoring. Some tactics might include, you know, I'm just going to ask a lot of questions, but not give a lot of information so I can start to get a, a better sense of where you're coming from before I make an offer. That would be a different sort of tactic. And so, you know, a little bit semantics, but I think in any case, the big picture here is that different kinds of situations call for different tactics. There are tactics that are appropriate when you're buying a car that are not appropriate when you're negotiating with your future boss or your spouse. And so being mindful about the relevant aspects of a negotiation situation and what kinds of behaviors are most appropriate and most likely to be successful, that's where it's, it, you need to be mindful about the way you're, you're approaching the situation. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And one of the things that I hear is the relationship is important. And how do the outcomes vary depending, I guess, on the approach you take? And is kind of there a way that you can get the best value out of it? Yeah. I mean, whether the relationship matters is one of the most important things that will determine which tactics you want to use. When I say whether the relationship matters, it's not whether the person matters as a person. It's not a a choice between showing up and being a bully and a jerk versus being a nice, kind person. It's really just what is the likelihood or importance of future interaction with this person. And if there is no likelihood or importance of future interaction, you can be a little bit tougher with claiming value for yourself because you don't depend on that person in the future, right? So when I go to buy a car, I'm going to be a pretty tough negotiator. I'm going to anchor on my price. I'm going to very reluctantly give concessions. I'm going to act like it really hurts me to give up another $500 on the price I was willing to pay. I'm going to try and get them to throw in a new set of tires and some maintenance for free. You know, I'm going to be a tough negotiator and getting more value for myself because I'm never going to see this person again. That doesn't mean I'm doing it in a way that's rude or dismissive or an awful human being at all. It just means that our future relationship is not my primary concern. My primary concern is getting a good deal. But that's very different if you're talking about things like 
you know, repeated business at a place or again with a relationship partner or for sure with the people you're going to be working with where the relationship really does matter. And hopefully you will have a long pattern of interaction with, you know, your future spouse or your future boss. And so there are some of those tactics that are about claiming value for myself. Those can backfire. Those can make you come off as really just interested in money when what really is important is interest in collaboration and also watching out for the other person's well-being. So that requires sort of a different approach. It doesn't mean you give up value. You still try to claim value for yourself, but you go about it in a different way. And you also have different priorities than just the money. So some mistakes I see people make here, one is where they're in a situation where the relationship matters, treating it like a used car interaction. So going really hard for a salary increase in a way that might rub people the wrong way or alienate people is going to be damaging. But really, honestly, more often I see the opposite mistake. I see people treating the relationship as more important than it is. And so when they're buying a car, they don't want to offend the salesperson. They don't want to risk like coming off the wrong way. And that's really a muscle to build. It's like, well, you don't have to offend them. Whether someone's offended is their choice, but you also don't want to give up value to make the other person feel good because the relationship is not what's important here. And that's actually the harder thing to get people to realize is that, you know, sometimes we instinctively overvalue being liked is what it comes down to. We don't want to not be liked and we're willing to give up value for that. Yeah, I think we spend a lot of time on our personal image and that might present a problem in the scenario. Yeah, yeah. Is there a scenario or situation where, I guess, for an employer or employee relationship where we can create the best value for all parties in a negotiation? I mean, that's always the goal, right? Is that we want everybody, you've heard win-win. Very seldom does win-win mean you get everything that you want and I get everything I want. So what we're really trying to do is find a situation where we understand the interests of each party. We understand why it is that they're looking for what they're looking for. And then we try to meet the most important interests of both parties. So probably not everybody's going to get everything they want because... That's not how negotiation goes. I mean, back to our original discussion, if you could get everything you wanted on your own, you would just do that, right? But the idea is to understand why people are asking what they want and then working together to try to achieve that. It's a collaborative process in this case because you have to understand the other party's interests and you have to have some concern with helping them get what they need out of this interaction. You know, this comes up a lot in job negotiations. An example is, you're applying for a job or you get a job offer and you want more money, right? You're trying to get more salary and the employer's not willing to give you more salary. That looks like a win-lose situation. One of you's going to win and one's going to lose. But in this situation, I always say, well, ask why. And it might seem self-evident why you want more money, but there's a lot of reasons you might want more salary. And it might be self-evident why the employer is unwilling to give it to you. But it very often happens that there are things underneath that salary requests that make it a really interesting problem. So for example, why do you want more money? Well, because all of my peers are getting more money. It's a matter of prestige and respect, perhaps, right? I want to get paid what I'm worth. Why won't the employer give it to you? Well, they may have values, let's say, around fairness. Everybody coming in at your level gets the same amount. I don't care what kind of superstar you are. You know, we have an equity. So if you look at it that way, then maybe there's a way around it where you say, okay, instead of just giving me more money, why don't you give me a higher level title? 
And then more money comes with that. And then the employer gets to say, yeah, they're making the same as everybody else with that title. And your need for more cash or more prestige is also met. And that's where we say it's kind of win-win, right? Not everybody gets everything they want, but most parties walk away happy. One of the things that I've thought about is in what case, or does it no mean rejection or does it begin the conversation? Yeah, the answer to that is yes. It can be either. (laughs) I have seen situations where the way somebody posed a proposition or the way someone approached the situation, the no was a definite no because they'd already approached it the wrong way and alienated the other party. Sometimes no is just what people say while they're thinking of a better answer. One fun tell is, you know, if you ask for something outrageous and the other person hesitates even a moment, the answer is not really no, right? So if there's that gap where you ask for something and they're like, no, well, they thought about it. So if it was a definite no, they wouldn't even be thinking about it. And so there's room to go back and and sort of wiggle and, and ask some more questions and see what's actually going on. In a previous conversation, you mentioned that your daughter is actually an excellent at negotiation growing up, she kind is. of watching yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Could you share a scenario where you saw your daughter's negotiation skill shine in an unexpected situation? Oh, yeah. She's an ace. I lose every negotiation with her. And I don't know whether because I taught her or whether she's just like a natural negotiator. But I'll remember we were at the farmer's market when she was, I want to say she was about seven and running around the farmer's market. And she came over to me and she had, I think like a $5 bill and a couple $1 bills that we'd given her. And she asked me to hold the money, to hold the $5 bill for her. And she put the two $1 bills back in her pocket. And I said, what are you doing? And she went over and said, well, that guy's selling popcorn for four bucks, but I want to be able to tell him that all I have is two and pull it out of my pocket and show him. (laughs) And so... (laughs) She did, and she was successful. I think it does not hurt your negotiation skills to be like seven years old and cute. So yeah, she's a real savvy negotiator. She's constantly wheeling, dealing, but in a way where it doesn't offend people. So I, I appreciate that about her. But she's also got, you know, just this month, actually, as we all moved back into our house together to sort of shelter in place, she walked in on my, my husband, Chris, and I having rather a heated conversation and I don't remember about what, but it was a disagreement we were having. And I was saying, I'm not upset. I'm just wanted to like, you know, talk about this. And Isabel walked through and said, you know, I was reading this thing just recently about civil discourse. <laughs> She's 20 now saying this. I said, oh, what's your point? And then she said, well, you know, you can talk about things that are emotional without getting emotional and really work it out. And so, mom, what are you feeling right now? Because <laughs> you sound kind of emotional. Yeah. So my, my very wise negotiation savvy 20-year-old basically mediated a conflict for us and really confirmed what we've known for a long time, which is she's by far the most mature person in our household. Those are some great stories. And it yeah. actually reminds me of when I went to a flea market with my aunt and she gave me like for a video game. And I think the price was like $50. And I went up there and I was like, how much is like the video game? And he was like, it's $50. I was like, I only have $40. And he's like, it's not enough. And then, so I went back to my aunt and and she's like, okay, let me show you how it's done. And she proceeds to go get it. And I thought that was absolutely funny. So are there qualities that differentiate the best negotiators? Well, I think some people have an easier time of it kind of naturally. I won't say they're natural negotiators, but 
I think some things that help are a willingness to engage. Like the best negotiators I know, they actually love the chit chat with people. They like to engage, right? It's not just, I'm going to show up and give you the best economic deal, take it or leave it. They enjoy the collaborative problem solving. And that turns out in most cases to be a real benefit. They're not shy about also putting their own needs forth. So they might be a little bit more just sort of confident in general. And I think some persistence and some, you know, innovation and creativity about, well, how can we meet these needs? You know, some people just sort of bring that to the conversation, but that's not to say that you can't have that if it's not natural to you. So there's negotiation training programs all over the country. The the FBI has a hostage negotiation training program that can take basically any person in the force and teach them the skills of like high stakes negotiation. I didn't start out with any negotiation research or knowledge. I started out as a negotiation TA and then kind of thought, well, I really like the subject. I'm going to read about it, but if I'm going to teach it, I better be practicing it. And that's all I did. It's just practice, practice, practice. And that's really how you turn sort of the book learning, the knowledge about it into the art, figuring out what works for you. So really the thing that distinguishes people, I think, really is the willingness to engage and the willingness to practice. Going back to the $4 popcorn, yeah, is it okay to lie in negotiations? Is it okay to lie in negotiation? Great question. There's no one right answer to that. And I say that because reasonable people can disagree about that. So for some people, sure, it's just a you should expect that. It's a part of negotiation. For others, no, it crosses a line. Barring legal definitions of fraud, you're always going to find people who will say, eh, a little bit of strategic misrepresentation is part of the game. I think the more interesting question of whether it's all right to lie in negotiation is, is it necessary? And is it smart? And there, the answer is often no. It's often not necessary. So lying is kind of a cheap trick, right? You do it when you haven't really prepared or you haven't thought of a better way to go about this. And it's, it's very often backfires. It's really easy to get caught out in the lie. You pretend you care about something you don't to see if you can get a better deal. And what if you get stuck with something you didn't want because you pretended to want it, right? So very often it can backfire. And there's, there's often ways to get the same effect without having to lie. It just takes a little bit of planning. It takes planning your answer to inconvenient questions. So, you know, do you have any other offers for this thing you're selling? Well, you could lie and say that you do, or you could plan a little and say, oh, it's only been on the market a day. That doesn't answer the question, but it also doesn't weaken your position, but it doesn't make you lie either. And then there are certain circumstances where a lie can be absolutely fatal. Any professional, like a job negotiation is one of those. Any situation where your personal or professional reputation is on the line, I would say lying is a really misinformed, misguided way to go about it. It's kind of the, the, I think, the last resort of people who didn't plan well. So how does negotiation come into play for managing conflicts and tensions in a team? Yeah, a great question. I almost consider that either like a sister topic or a subset of negotiation. You know, the way I've described it when relationship matters, which is That's usually why there's conflict. There's some sort of relationship at stake here. It really is a process of learning to ask the right questions, listen to the answers, and help both parties get clear on what are their major priorities. Like, what what does success look like? And then set the trustful, collaborative tone to work that out. 
And the art of it, of course, is helping the other party get their interests met while not giving up your own interests. So not selling yourself out either. And that's really what conflict management is. It's just that there are probably no goods at stake, goods or services. It really is what's going on here. What are your, what are your interests? Is it about a particular outcome you want? Is it about being respected? Is it about being heard? There's something that both parties want that they feel they're not getting. The skills of negotiation can help make that clearer and help people come to a, kind of like a, an enactable agreement about how to move forward together. It sounds like based on what you just mentioned in relation to conflict management, there's some overlap between negotiation skills and leadership. You have a model for leadership and you teach a model for leadership. Can you define what that model is built around? Yeah. So the leadership program that I run at Cornell and all of the exec ed leadership work that I do has you know, built around sort of four pillars of leadership. And this is work that, that came out of uh, collaboration with a former colleague of mine and a dear friend at Yale School of Management, Rodrigo Canales. We ended up teaching together and individually leadership globally to wildly different audiences, you know, MBAs internationally, but also executives in pretty much any industry you can name. I've worked with female scientists at a major international pharmaceutical company, Rodrigo and I teach leadership to um, Tibetan monks and nuns in India, down to sixth graders, right? So all kinds of populations. And we started to notice that there were some key elements to people being effective in what they were doing, to being effective leaders. And so that's what's built into all of the work that I do in leadership with students and with execs. And it starts with knowledge. So, you know, I'm a social scientist. I don't think you have to figure things out yourself. You can learn about things. And, and one thing that's important is to know where to get that knowledge. So there's lots of empirical work in the social sciences that will point you in one direction or another as a leader about how to deal with, with different situations. And you ought to know. If you don't have that knowledge yourself, you ought to know where to get it. So knowledge is the first pillar. And then we pair that with insight. And that's just the capacity to know yourself, to reflect on yourself, to understand your own strengths, values, weaknesses, your sense of purpose, and so on, but also to be able to understand that about other people. And importantly, to recognize that other people are different from you, and they have their own strengths, values, and purpose. And that when you're a leader, you leverage all of that and you make all of that work together. But it does require a capacity for insight. The third pillar is experience. We alternately call this ability or skill. It's really just the idea that, you know, I can have a very intuitive, insightful brain surgeon who's gone to school and read a lot of books, but I don't want him operating on me if I'm the first person he's ever come across, right? And so just like that, leaders need to practice. They need to apply and learn and reflect on, on what they're learning from practice. And then the fourth pillar is courage. So this is also something I'm passionate about and actually have developed a curriculum around is how to prepare yourself to take courageous action. Without courage, without the willingness to act in the face of fear, we find leaders may have a lot of knowledge, they may know what the right thing to do is, but they become victims, they become martyrs because they're unwilling or unable to take the action that's necessary. So in all the work I do, you'll, you'll find the, those sort of threads running through all of the content. Yeah, I think courage is highly important. And it's actually one of the Johnson's four C's of, of leadership. So that's, it is there's, there's that overlap. It is indeed. And practice of scenes is as important in this context as it was in our conversation around negotiations. 
Yeah, I think that's right. Up until recently, you know, in my, for, for example, in my leadership program in engineering, I was very hand wavy about courage. Like, how are you teaching courage? Well, we're doing a lot of things that make people very uncomfortable. We get very personal and we put them in, you know, experiential learning that's going to make them uncomfortable. And I guess if they come out the other side, they had courage. More recently, I started to get an interest in, can you actually teach courage, right? What, what psychological tools do we have that enable people to do scary things? And so I started to experiment with that. And I have some curriculum around that that works. So in the course of six weeks, I can move people from thinking, for example, I would never, ever fill in the blank, right? I would never negotiate my salary. I would never jump out of an airplane. I would never confront my husband about whatever to being able to do that in a way that's effective and done with integrity. There are some real tools for that that are powerful that I know from experience actually work. It's exciting stuff. So if there is someone, potentially not your husband, but someone else that is afraid of heights, how do we take them from point A to point B? (laughs) Oh my God. Well, I'm afraid of heights. So you've hit home with that one. Afraid of heights. I'll tell you my own story. Like I I am afraid of heights. I started off on this courage path being afraid of jumping out of a plane, terrified. And for one reason or another, kind of stuck with it. And now that's my passion, right? I'm a a skydiver is my, my other identity, my other lifestyle. So I know that you can get over these very rational fears, like fear of heights or fear of jumping out of a plane. One of the most important ingredients there is why. So is there a reason that you don't want to be afraid of heights? Is there a reason that you have for wanting to climb that mountain, even though it's scary? If there's no compelling reason, if there's no values at stake or there's no purpose in it, you're probably not going to do it. You have to have enough willingness to act to make it worth it. And so there's a whole lot of things that many of us are afraid of that just simply aren't worth trying. If there is a reason, then there are some other ways to sort of convince yourself or encourage yourself to take those actions, to get over your fear of heights maybe, or better yet, you're probably not going to get over your fear of heights. I mean, I'm not a phobia psychologist or anything, but what I can do is help you take an action despite your fear of heights. And that's really what courage is. It's taking action, not because you don't feel the fear anymore, but despite the fear that you're feeling because you have a reason for doing it. In your mind, who is the greatest negotiator? Oh my gosh, really? The greatest negotiator, besides my daughter, I'm assuming. (laughs) Yes, besides your daughter. That is a hard question to answer because it sort of forces me to think, well, there's some prototype, there's some perfect form of negotiator and who's closest to that. In reality, I think that there's a lot of really great negotiators and a lot of it is sort of matching their skills and their style to whatever situation they find themselves in. So there are some negotiators that I would definitely send in when there's a lot of money on the line that I would not send in when there's a life on the line. I can tell you the qualities I admire in the people I see being great negotiators. One is patience. Patience and this really bizarre ability to connect with people. So one of my friends is an FBI-trained hostage negotiator, retired for the St. Louis Police Department. Gerald Barnes is his name. Sometimes he comes and talks to my class. And he's just affable. He can chat up anybody. And he makes you feel like you're the most important person in the world. And it's just this real charisma that he's got that serves him extremely well in tense situations where you've got people who have a lot on the line, who don't feel like anybody's listening to them or on their side. Gerald is able to bridge that divide immediately. 
And so for that line of work, he's like particularly well-suited. I've never seen him negotiate a law contract, so I don't know about that, but I do admire people's ability to be calm in tense situations and to really project this idea that we're in this together. I'm not here to take advantage of you. Yeah, it's extremely important to have a win-win mentality, but how does this work across cultures? If I go to another country, for example, how do I negotiate? You know, Americans have one style, Western negotiation. We're world famous for our negotiating style. How do I make that work in a country that has much different cultural interaction norms? It can be done for sure. It requires a lot of attention and study and some humility. So Americans are kind of known. I mean, this this isn't going to surprise you. So if you had to put like, let's say three words on what you think a stereotypic American negotiator is seen like worldwide, what words would you guess? I'll put you on the spot. You know, this is the first time this has happened, but I would say almost (laughs) brash usually direct and maybe a little, same with brash, but a little combative. But I haven't been in that many negotiation situations, so that that I'm going to qualify with that statement. Yeah, no, perfect. You don't even have to be to know that that's the stereotype, and it is often the way we, we show up. Brash, pushy, combative, like win-lose, going to come in and use our power. And yeah, you know, that's the stereotype of an American negotiator. When you get to a country, let's say like Japan, which is a very indirect communication norms. You never say no, even if that's what you mean. You say yes reluctantly, or you say yes many times, but don't do anything. And people are supposed to know that that means no. All kinds of differences in the way we use and see time, the hierarchy. So Americans are very egalitarian in some sense. You know, you could show up and the lowest lowest person on the totem pole might be the one speaking for the group. In other countries, you would never speak out before the senior person of your group. So some of these are things you can learn. You can just learn different cultural norms. And a lot of it, you know, your attitude matters. So coming in and recognizing I'm going to match my behavior to the people that I'm working with, that goes a long way. Even if you don't quite nail the right norms, a willingness to try really matters. That's true, by the way, whether you're talking about cultural differences or just meeting new people who have different styles than you do. Showing up and showing respect and curiosity about the way other people approach this situation goes a long way. Yeah, it's almost investing in other people and creating that relationship. For sure. It's a sign of respect, right? That I'm willing to adjust my behavior to you. And that is the basis of at least situations where where the reputation or the relationship matters. Building trust and showing respect goes a long way off right out, right out of the gate. Of course. And as a professor, you teach a lot of students across a wide range. How do you display those? But also, who were some of your mentors growing up? I gain inspiration from hearing about possibilities. And one way to do that is just hearing about other people's paths and hearing their stories and watching how they respond to situations. So I wouldn't say that I have a mentor that I've worked with in a typical mentoring sense. But I do have a lot of people that I just tremendously respect. And I'm always curious to hear them talk about the challenges that they're facing and see how they're handling those things and contrast that with my own choices in similar situations. And I always learn so much. Just this last week in my leadership class, I'm teaching a former Yale colleague, Brigadier General Tom Kolditz, appeared in our class. So he was the director of the behavioral sciences group at West Point for, I think, 12 years. 
He also, I met him at Yale. He's also a skydiver. So he gave me some great advice when I was a baby skydiver. And more recently, he was the, he's, he's a door institute for new leaders at Rice University and just doing an amazing job. Despite all of this, like he's a big deal. He gladly gave my class of undergraduate engineering students at Cornell, you know, 45 minutes of his time just to pop in and answer their questions and talk with them. And you know, his tremendous skill as a leader, but also just his, his availability and his compassion. I'm just so inspired. And hearing how he approaches things like, you know, the, the tumultuous times we're in, it's clear that, you know, he teaches leadership, but he also practices it. And so I just, I have a handful of people like that, that I'm always inspired by, and, and he's certainly one of them. But I also try to look for people who are not like me. So I think one temptation is to try to find people that we're comfortable with who maybe look like us or have a similar background. I find a lot of inspiration from people who come from very different backgrounds, who don't necessarily look like me, and therefore are more likely to have different solutions or different approaches to problems. Yeah, I guess to answer your question, instead of having one mentor, I collect examples, right? I collect stories from a lot of places. That's kind of why I love movies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Before you go, I just want to say it was a pleasure speaking with you. And is there anything else that you would want to share? I would like your listeners to know we've covered a lot of topics. I'm a big believer in all of this stuff is accessible to people. And I think that it does a real disservice for somebody to think about things like negotiation or courage or leadership and think, well, that's not me or I can't do that. Honestly, you can. And there's an incredible amount of empowerment in even just a little bit of input. Like negotiation is a great example. You can become better than 90% of the people out there with a six-week investment of your time. And it's not even that much every week. But finding somebody who can give you feedback, who can coach you, who believes in you, I've just seen it transform people's lives. It's so empowering. And so I would just love for people to leave with that idea that you know it's, it's a life skill that will serve in so many different realms. And it's so accessible that I would just encourage people to look for opportunities to develop these skills in themselves. That is an inspirational point to end on. And once again, Professor Dawson, thank you for being a guest on Present Value. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by Maria Castex, Eric Joe, and Gadia Rita from the Present Value team. I'm your host for this episode, Alex Vorwald. Music by Poddington Bearer. Logo by Kalechi Bamongo. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.